Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Today in the show, we're going to be talking about a new, low-budget, inventive science fiction film called The Vast of Night. It's going to be available to watch from home starting this Friday on Amazon Prime. Welcome to Film Club. All right, so Alex, on the show, we've been discussing, uh, you know, ever since COVID started and movie theaters have been shut down, we've been discussing a lot of films that are coming out direct to VOD or streaming platforms. And this week is no exception. I personally think this is going to be one of the buzziest films to come out during this period. It's called The Vast of Night, and it is an indie sci-fi film that premiered at Slamdance Film Festival last year, actually, which is interesting. Slamdance doesn't tend to have the as long of a tail as, as Sundance does or even South by Southwest. But this one uh, gained a lot of momentum coming out of Slamdance. I saw it at the Overlook Film Festival last May where it won a, a jury prize, and then it continued to play a Fantastic Fest. And I believe it, you saw it at TIFF, I believe, Alex? I did. I saw it at Toronto, um, yeah. which is, you're right that that's an interesting arc for a film that premieres at Slamdance. Um, for those who don't know, Slamdance is a small, a, a very small independent film festival that takes place in uh, Park City, Utah every January mm -hmm. uh, d during the Sundance Film Festival. It's yeah. sort of seen as uh, it's sort of seen as the as Sundance has grown over the years and they've gotten more high profile films and uh, the sort of independent in uh, their their mission statement has uh, you could say has been compromised. Maybe maybe the independent films they're showing there sometimes aren't really all that independent anymore. It's relative, um, yeah. It's all relative. It's very <laughs> relative. Um, Slam Dance is still very much a festival that that highlights um, truly independent movies and, and often films that don't make it into Sundance will then show at mm -hmm. Slam Dance instead. Yeah. Um, the Vast of Night is, is one that it, it's very unusual to see a slam dance movie have the kind of festival life uh, that this movie has had. I mean, uh, I remember talking to somebody, uh, Brian Tellerico, he's an editor over at uh, RogerEbert.com, and he said that he can't remember a time uh, in his history of going to film festivals of something of something premiering at slam dance and then showing up later at Toronto. Yeah, yeah, it, because Slamdance, I mean, I would even go so far as to call it underground. It is, you know, it is the yeah. most indie of indie festivals. And the, well, the interesting thing about that is that when you watch the film, it appears more like what you would call more of a Sundance title, a more technically accomplished, you know, uh, visually ambitious sort of feature um, but it was produced on a slam dance, a very low budget kind of, uh, it was a very low budget kind of production. Um, the director is Andrew Patterson. Uh, this is his first feature. And uh, the film was shot in small towns in Texas and New Mexico. And basically the director said that they would just kind of roll into these real dusty small towns and... Uh, you know, their producers use their pitch skills to get the whole town involved, and they kind of use these little small towns as location, you know, they, they, they made them into the locations for the film, sort of transforming them in the 1950s, which, you know, when it comes to a sort of rundown, you know, half-abandoned, all-American downtown, doesn't actually take a whole lot of effort. Uh, but it was yeah. a very independent production, which you would not know from watching it, because the film... Uh, it is very interesting. The structure of it is very interesting. The script of it, it it's very dialogue driven, but it also features a lot of, I mean, 
you know, I don't mean this in a negative way, but it's got a lot of fancy camera work. It's got a lot. It's got a lot of uh, dolly shots and crane shots. And there is one shot midway through the film that is one of those uh, where they they fake a continuous shot through what looks mm-hmm. like impossible circumstances, which is very technically impressive. I don't know if I if I totally agree with you that the movie uh, looks. Uh... Well, I, I would agree that the movie is made with, with a, a lot of ingenuity and that the movie is made in there. There's some real craftsmanship going on in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there's some visual ambition. You, you talk about these long shots. Um, and uh, so I do think the, the film the film is made with, with more craft than you, than you sometimes see in, in something that you might call a zero-budget movie. But right, also, exactly. you know, a general... Like, if somebody stumbled into this thing, I think they would they would be very aware that this is a low-budget film in, in some ways. Um, you think so? Yeah, I, I do think so. And But I think a lot of that is the, the movie embracing its limitations as well. Um, mm, I mean, th- yeah, this for is sure. a... This is a science fiction film that does not contain a lot of special effects. I would say the special effects that it does contain are not especially strong, necessarily, which is okay, because the movie minimizes them. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of them, so, you know, it's it, it's not it's not all that troublesome because there's not a lot of it. <laughs> totally. It's a good-looking film, but there are signs, I think. And I mean, one of them is that there are no there are no stars in this film at all. Well, that's true. I mean, one of the actresses in the film, Sierra McCormick, has, uh, she's been in, uh, she was in at least one other, you know, sort of low budget, uh, well received low budget film, which was VFW, the Fangoria film that came out earlier this year. She was one of the leads in that one as well. So she's kind of on the rise. But it's true that uh, as far as actors go, she's not, not really a big name. No. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, so the film is set in the 1950s. Uh, it's in a small town in New Mexico. And uh, we basically follow a couple characters. Um, one of them is, uh, he's, a, he's a radio DJ named Everett. And uh, the other one is a teenage girl who works at, uh, she's a switchboard operator. Um, and we meet them in, in the opening minutes and uh, they kind of have this, this, this bantering friendship. And the two of them basically stumble upon evidence of... Something strange going on in their small town. What what they say what they say in the film is they go there's something in the sky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of this plays honestly. Uh, I mean, you talk about it, it sort of embracing its limitations. A lot of this film mm-hmm. does play very much like a radio play. Very much, yes. This film could work as a radio play. Nine, I'd say ninety percent of it could work as a radio play. There. Are, it's structured in sort of acts, which is also similar to a radio play. So, like, the first act is um, Faye and Everett are walking through the parking lot outside of a high school basketball game, interviewing different townspeople. And this is supposed to be a tiny town in New Mexico, population 492, it says at the beginning of the film. And then you have another long shot following them as Faye goes to her job at the switchboard. And then there is a very long extended... Uh, the I would say the next act of the film is a long extended scene that's just Faye at work taking different calls on the switchboard. And that's when the plot really starts to get into motion. But yeah, a lot of it revolves around uh, the switchboard. And also there's another long uh, scene in the radio station later in the film. And I think it resembling a radio play is kind of of a piece with the film is very, um, fascinated with and enthusiastic about mid-century analog technology. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and and with audio recording, 
for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not an accident that one of them is a switchboard operator and one of them works at a radio station. I mean, this is very... Right. Uh, the, the film sort of builds in its audiophile interest into the plot itself. I mean, these are mm-hmm. characters who, who begin the film talking about recording audio and having conversations with people. I mean, uh, I, I, think it, I think it is smartly structured in that respect, the opening few minutes being them literally carrying this new tape recorder around and testing it out and trying it out. So um, I think the film is very aware of... Uh, of, of the lineage of uh, radio plays that it's that it, that it's kind of uh, riffing on, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think of like Orson Welles's famous, some would say infamous, War of the Worlds broadcast that actually uh, is said to have fooled some people into believing that they were really hearing uh, over the radio a alien invasion yeah, happening. This is a, a movie that I think is very aware of that. Yeah, uh, just a real short diversion. I believe they they played War of, War of the Worlds the second time in South America and it really took off in South America. People were really unprepared for it there. But anyway, um another lineage that the film the that The Vast of Night is really uh indebted to is of Twilight Zone and mm-hmm. of anthology sci-fi series. I mean, it is very explicit about this. It opens with the opening to a fictional Twilight Zone style show called Paradox Theater. And then it says tonight's episode, The Vast of Night. And we push in from a 1950s uh, television, a small black and white television, push into full color to start the film. So that is another tradition that it is very um, clearly paying uh, tribute to. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of fun uh, conceptual aspects like that to this film. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I'd say uh, conceptually, this film is very, very smart. Yeah, yeah, and and, and very charming. I mean, I, I think it's kind of it's sort of minimalist approach to the idea of. Well, I don't want to say what's happening, but I think you probably have a pretty good sense at this point, listening to us talk about this film. But uh, yeah, it, it, and the fact that it's set in New Mexico, you know, in the nineteen fifties, uh, it all 1950s, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you kind of know so where I it's won't going. Be, I guess I won't be coy. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of it, it's sort of minimalist approach to to the story of alien visitation. I think is is immense charming. I, I think the film, I, I think there are some aspects of the film that um, are a little bit more primitive than others. I do think that, uh, I actually would say that I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I think the, the first half of this movie is really strong. I think yeah. a lot of that is the setup is really, really strong. Um, I, I really like its opening 20 minutes or so when it's just kind of operating like almost like a Richard Linklater movie or something. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You know, where we're just, we're, we're sort of being, uh, we're sort of being uh, plunged into this, into this 1950s environment and we meet these two characters and they're just walking and talking, you know? Yeah. And, and we actually watch them walk pretty much in a, in a single uninterrupted take. We watch them walk from the school sort of across across this parking lot and a few blocks basically to their respective places of business mm-hmm. and uh, it really does give you a, a really strong sense of this particular town and I think a lot of that is uh, both both spatially we're being given a sense of it but also uh, the dialogue and who these characters are the dialogue is is I think pretty sharp and and, and pretty witty some mm-hmm. of it anyway and I, I love that I love the, the shot actually at uh, with the, with the switchboard opera with Faye at uh, at the big switchboard um, and she's moving these circuits around to take these various calls and uh, she's hearing this this strange otherworldly sci-fi sound come in over over the airwaves that's I my really... favorite part of the film yeah I really like that part of the film just as a contained sequence it's I think it's really really well done yeah 
I do think that that the film becomes a little bit less interesting in the, in the, in the, in in its later scenes when we kind of have to pay off some of uh, what is being set up. Mm-hmm. I really do think it works best as kind of a hangout movie in 1950s New Mexico. But I do admire I, I do admire its conceptual ambition in a lot of ways. Yeah, I do too. I admire the conceptual ambition. I think in terms of a debut, you know, when you talk about debuts as calling cards for this director, it's a really good calling card to show what he can do without a lot of resources. Uh, and then I I also liked the relationship between the two main characters. I liked that they were sort of united by an interest in technology. I felt like the character and the dialogue and the themes all tied together really nicely. But yeah, I would agree with you. The film does have one weak point is that all this all of this is just like staged so well and set up so well that by the time it comes to the payoff, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. It feels like a foregone conclusion almost when you get to the end of the movie. I would agree. I also would say that if um, if you're going into something like this expecting like uh, loads of thrills and scares, you're not going to get that from The Vast of Night. Um, it, its pleasures, I think, are a little bit more eccentric than mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. This is not an alien invasion film that's going to like you know terrify you necessarily. I mean, I don't want. No, I, you know, who knows? no it's We're all not different. scary. It's definitely <laughs> sci-fi, not horror. It's not sci-fi yeah. horror at all. It's sci-fi drama if anything you know yeah i think if nothing else this film is, is certainly a tribute to the ingenuity of uh of low budget filmmaking and just the notion that sometimes uh some of the best the, the best films made on a very limited budget are ones that recognize what they can do and recognize what resources they have and what they have access to i mean this is clearly a film where uh where the filmmakers had access to vintage cars where the filmmakers had access to some vintage technology as well and uh, I, I think it ends up it ends up looking very much like a case for like if you can get your hands on these things, build a movie around them. You know, you always talk about looking for an original look at things and a fresh take on things. And the reason that I am excited about this movie and I think it foretells good things for its creative team is that they managed to take, you know, the most cliched environment possible where we didn't even have to, all we have to say is 1950s New Mexico, you know what the movie's about. And they managed to do it in a way that I had not quite seen before that is consistent with its setting, but also feels modern. And I think that's a tricky thing to pull off. All right, everybody, that's all for us on The Vast of Night, which will be out on May 29th on Amazon Prime. In the meantime, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Stay tuned, because this week we're going to be offering a very special sort of format-breaking episode uh, talking about the long-running Fox TV series, The X-Files. So we'll be around for that soon. Thanks.